that's me. That's me. I hope. I hope. <laughs> oh, oh, I can hardly wait to get this thing going. <clears throat> no, I have to be very serious. This is a very serious radio station. We have uh, profound issues at stake here. I can't uh, offhand uh, think seriously of what uh, they are, but uh, we know that. Oh, by the way, our award for the most deeply concerned, totally dynamically involved listener will be presented tonight. Uh, bring it up there a little bit larger, Herb, please. Marv Thornberry was traded to the Mets on May 24, 1962. A day that shall live in infamy. Bring it up, big herb. All the way up. Come on. Big East, This is a totally confusing letter to me, and I'm not, uh, I'm not yet prepared to totally digest it. Without a little uh, spaghetti sauce on it. Dear Mr. Shepard, for several years I have been listening to your program nightly. You are one of my favorite performers. But on Friday, last week, you lost me and many others as loyal listeners. Not only have I enjoyed your work, and in fact you're one of my favorite performers, but my other favorite performer is Lawrence Welk. You're uncalled for criticism and ridicule of his program shocked me. I would have thought that you, of all people, would have enjoyed Mr. Welk the way I do. I'm sure we would enjoy your work. Signed, an irate ex-listener, a Lawrence Welk fan, and one who loves John Gambling. <laughs> Thank you. Hold it, Doc. Look, that's enough. That's enough for you. Reset that. Who's doing all that yelling? Now, I can't tell whether or not this lady misreads Lawrence Welk or whether she misleads, misreads me. <laughs> I mean, I just can't imagine somebody who, who digs that tall, skinny lady with the platinum teeth who sings uh, Beautiful Ohio and uh, who likes my show. Uh, I, what is the corollary? That's a terrible thing to tell. Gee, I mean, it's like Paul Krasner getting a note from a guy saying, Mr. Krasner, you're my favorite writer, along with Rona Jaffe. I mean, you know. <laughs> Which way does one turn? It's one of the most disturbing things that's been said to me in a long time. A lot of disturbing things are around everywhere to friends these days. One doesn't know which way to turn, does one? Brack. No, no, I don't want to bring that up this time, no. Oh, oh, incidentally, speaking of uh, disturbing things, I'm letting you think about this for a minute. Hold on, I just, just to think of disturbing things for a second, I just let them soak in. Okay. What is more disturbing than a terrible, creepy, crawly thing? 
You know, people are always afraid of creeping things. Have you, <laughs> have you ever had that had that idea when you're asleep? Say, uh, and you look over in the corner as you wake up, and you see this dark blob of shadow in the corner, and you're totally convinced that it's some fantastic, evil, unimaginably uh, horrible thing. Nothing is concrete as a person, just a thing. Well, of course, people have always been afraid of the thing, the giant thing. In fact, uh, one time I was sitting in a bus and I thought of this monster. It's not a monster. You see, the trouble with most monster movies is they show the monsters. And after that, it becomes, uh, you know, an obvious thing. Have you noticed that almost every monster in the monster movies uses the same soundtrack? They all go, Whoa! That's the standard movie monster. And, um, yeah, it's always the same monster. No matter what the monster is, I mean, he makes the same sound. And, and the particular Japanese ones, uh, the Japanese must make the worst monster movies ever. They're just unbelievably bad. This is the talk about stinkeroonies. I mean, they are so bad. And this monster comes out, and you always know it's a, it's a Japanese monster movie, you see, because. In comes the, the scientist, and you can see the dubbing job is, you know, he's obviously saying something. He's saying this, you see, and it comes out, you know, you hear this voice saying, oh, the monster is approaching, and uh, he keeps talking, and then you hear out there, you hear the monster. There's a shot of the monster, the water parts, and you see this plastic head come out with sparks coming out of its eyes. And you can tell the sparks are sort of sparklers. You know, they brought them down at the fireworks plant, and little sparklers coming out, and he goes, Same old monster. It's got the same old soundtrack. It's it's as classical as the sound that that you always hear in the westerns when they shoot the gun. You know, have you noticed all guns do that in westerners? You know, all westerns have the same soundtrack. I think they traded around. MGM trades the same. You know, it's the same one. They have the universal gun, and then uh, occasionally it goes. You know how they always uh, ricochet off the rocks. Well, uh, actually, a gun, if you ever heard a real gun go off, it doesn't sound like that. It sort of goes... <laughs> That's about how they go, right? They make a sort of a big popping sound. Like <laughs> That's about it. But that's not very romantic. Now, how do real monsters sound? You ever hear a real monster? A real monster does not sound like the Japanese monster. A real scary monster. Now, if you're lying in your sacks, so you're in there... Sears Roebuck uh, double-decker Hollywood bed with the Carol Lombard uh, back on, see, and it's all padded, and you're lying there, and you've got your little cutout bunnies on the wall. And, you know, it's just your, your place. And, and uh, sure, and you're over in the corner, you've got this chest of drawers. I'm pronouncing, of course, with the Jersey pronunciation there. And you've got this chest of drawers over in the corner. It's got all your little socks rolled up, and they're petrified, and 
You got your jockey shirt. It's all your little place, you know, your little thing. When all of a sudden in the corner, you're lying there, sort of half asleep, and you come to a little bit, uh, you know, something uh, woke you up, uh, uh, the sound of the water dripping in a john next door, something, and you wake up, and then you hear a real monster. How, how would a really scary monster sound? Now, if you heard this... <laughs> Some slobs got his TV on, on channel whoopee, you know, way down the slum end of the TV dial, and they've got that that uh, continual bad Japanese monster movie that they're showing. And uh, so you wouldn't think anything about it if that started to holler like that in your room. But if a, if a monster, a real monster were in your room, it would go something like this. Scare you right out of your bippy. I want to tell you, you would blow every known fuse in your skull. Just so. Now, admit it, that is one hell of a noise. If you heard that coming out of the air shaft, I want to tell you. I mean. <laughs> Well, see, that's that's a real monster. Now, uh, I, you know, I, they're, 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 the fear of of a monster runs through everybody. Just, I don't care who he is officially, even the most official guys. It's there. It's this fear. Now, it's not a it's not a specific corporeal monster. I mean, if it's just a blown up shot of a Gila monster, for example, you say, "Oh, look at a big Gila monster." That's the end of it. But how does a monster look? Well, have you heard about what's happening down in Florida? Did you hear about the giant, sneaky, rotten, stinky snails that are climbing all over the state of Florida? Did you hear about that? Can you imagine running into a snail about the size of a basketball? That's right. I'm not kidding. What is happening? Did you hear about the, the walking catfish they got down there? Listen, they got catfish now to walk all over the lawn. Then you're out there, and the next thing you know, a catfish strikes you. Know, he sees you going along. If, you know, it's, it's a twilight. He thinks you're uh, any other kind of a bug, like a fish. You know how fish do with bugs. And whap! And you got a catfish hitting you at the knees. And, uh, you know, it's a scary thing. Did you know how that, that thing started down there? Well, I'm just bringing this out because we're sitting here in New York, and we've got it pretty well, you know, under control. The others we got are, well, you know, I mean, you've been on the subway, you've been around. <laughs> I mean, they're they're fairly they're lethal, of course, the monsters we have, but they're they're uh, understandable. They're in a sense a peel off of us. Of course, the only monster that New York has that's really a monster. Did you hear about the alligators? Of course. You know about the alligators down in the water system, don't you? Now they got there. I will tell you that. Scared the daylights out of you. Oh, some of them are 14 feet long. Well, you know, there was this whole big fad for a while there, buying these baby alligators. People go down to places like Florida, Palm Springs, California and stuff, 
and they buy a baby alligator, and his big sign says, Dollar twenty-nine cent home, a baby alligator, your Aunt Emily. Well, your Aunt Emily gets it and passes out, and uh, the alligator walks around. What are you going to do? You see, you can't wring an alligator's neck without uh, risking uh, getting your arm bit off at the elbow. So uh, the next thing you know, the alligator's getting bigger, and they grow like uh, Billy be damned, you know, these alligators. Oh, yeah. So after about a year and a half, when he's such a cute little alligator, all of a sudden, one day, you got him in the bathtub, see? And he's laundered in the bathtub. And Uncle Abel comes in, you know, in the yard, locks the door, and... <laughs> and the ball game. So uh, what do you do with the alligator? Well, a lot of people took him, and they flushed him down the thing, you know? You know the thing. Down it went. Well, he's pretty rugged, so they went down the old thing down there, and they floated around down in the water there among all the beer cans and junk, and uh, they're underground, and it's warm down there, you see. And they climbed up into the sewers, and the next thing you know, we got alligators. And, you know, speaking of this, there's no telling where it's all going to lead. Did you see that great commercial? You know that lady? is a shot of this lady. Have you? There are some commercials that are so irritating, I can't stand them. The one that goes, Hi, Jim! Oh, that lady. Oh, you know that? I hate her. She goes, hi, Jim. Wow. That lady. I don't know what they think they're selling, but, man, they're selling a lot of guys <laughs> and something they don't think they're selling, but she walks in. Hi, Jim. Then there's another lady that comes in and says, oh, blue water. And she looks down, and apparently she's looking at the john. And the next thing you know, she's taking the top off the back of the john. And here's this little guy rolling around in a three-inch rowboat in the John. Well, she doesn't seem to be very surprised, which surprises me. You know, if I found a three-inch guy rolling around in a rowboat in the John, I think I would, uh, I don't think I'd ask, ask him about the blue water, frankly. Uh, I'd say, oh, yeah. <laughs> now, that would be a monster if you ran across. The, the, the things we accept is sort of, uh, sort of uh, with no questions in commercials, with totally flip you out of your B-U-R-D if it happened in real life. Can you imagine opening up your sink and out comes a white tornado and it flies around the kitchen? Would you stay around and talk about detergents? Or would you, you know, bust your skull, flip it? Now, how about the one where the lady is standing next to the... Uh, have you noticed how, how uh, magic is getting very important in these commercials? And uh, it shows a lady standing next to her uh, automatic washer and dryer. She's always standing next to this thing. And all of a sudden, out of the darkness comes this tall, thin figure dressed what looks like in a space, some kind of a Martian costume. And he says, Halt, lady. Halt, lady. I have a magic enzyme all-purpose, totally fantastic detergent that will take care of all your problems. And he materializes out of the air. Now, she doesn't go, Ah! No, what does she do? She asks him about enzymes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's another breed of person. I, I don't know what, what I would do. I mean, I mean, remember there was a commercial one time about the Bardol. This little Bardol monster came out of a guy's car and told him that he kept his valves clean. Then he went back into the car. Well, if any little Bardol monster comes out of my car and tells me he's keeping my valves clean, I uh, don't know. I don't know whether they include that in the warranty. In the monster. Oh, no, there are monsters everywhere. Now, now, 
this. Yeah, I mean, has it occurred to you that we could be considered monsters to other creatures living in the solar system? And some guy is, is, you know, he's way out in the 23rd galaxy from the left next to Alpha Centauri. And uh, he's drawing monsters. <laughs> you know, he's doing a comic strip up there. And the monsters look like Lindsay. I mean, they're terrible looking to them. You see, <laughs> he tries this thing. Or, or uh, it looks like some, uh, uh, yeah, it looks like Shirley MacLaine or something. Terrible, unbelievable, indescribable, ugly monster. Yeah, but you, every, all these things are in, in the, you know, I have, to, I have to take these things in the, it's all in perspective. Yeah, yeah. How's that for a cliche? That was almost as good as, uh, gee, who could have said that? Uh, almost anybody. Any six guys I know on WBAI could have said that with a straight face and believed it. Bump, ba dum bump. But that's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the others. But did you hear about how those snails got started, any of you? One kid came home from a trip to Hawaii, and he brought three snails as a present to his grandmother. The entire state of Florida is now overrun with giant snails, roughly the saddleopes. They are eating everything in sight, even the paint on houses. We quote, they are giant African snails, said uh, Al Calvert, area administrator for the Florida Agriculture Department. He estimates that there are now 20,000 snails in a 13-square-block area. He said that the snails thrive on foliage and calcium. And he says it looks like, quote, it looks like they're beginning to move north. There were thousands of them. He said some of these snails are twice the size of cantaloupes. He said inside the, the snail shell, which is a big baby, the snails themselves were over a foot long. <laughs> you know, the snail is a bad-looking animal anyway. I just said, uh, I mean, you know, I could, uh, oh, he's, he says these snails are capable of producing 600 new snails every year. And he says, and they're busily doing it. They eat the lush foliage and paint from the houses to get calcium. Listen to this. Yeah, we find them on roofs, clinging to walls, hiding beneath eaves. They're everywhere. He says, we can't poison them either. We don't know what to do with them. Monster snails. I mean, you know. Well, I forget to get used. Did I ever tell you about that? That, that, you know, speaking of monsters, we've all we've all got deep fears. I think one of the greatest fears for all that people have of monsters. If you notice, know, almost every monster that's shown in in TV films is a monster that comes out of water. Think back now. Monsters are connected with two things: water. They come out of an ancient sea. And that boy, I don't know what monster guys who wrote monster films did or monster movies did before the invention of the atom bomb. Give me a little uh, echo chamber there, if you will, please. Now, I'll give you... No, no, not yet. I'll give you the cue for it. Now, here is the way all monster movies end. Now, how many times have you watched this? Now, they all end with the same thing. See, you see this giant mushroom explosion. That's the beginning. It always It opens up with something like this. That's the opening of a monster film. You see a big mushroom cloud. 
And then you see people running around. They've just tested the atom bomb. And then you see uh, Steve Strongheart, who is the uh, young major in charge of investigating monsters for the U.S. Army Air Force. And uh, he is being interviewed by old professor, uh, uh, you know, usually a professor looks a little bit like uh, Dr. Hewer. He's always, oh, bless my buttons. They certainly are producing terrible monsters. And he has a beautiful daughter, played by any one of 16,000 actresses who play in these Class D L.A. cheapies. Now, you've seen the L.A. cheapie. There's a certain look to an L.A. cheapie. They always have a 1954 Ford convertible, painted white. They keep driving around in front of supermarkets <laughs> and up and down these back roads of the L.A. world. That's the L.A. cheapie, see? And then, after all this stuff, when uh, finally uh, Steve Strongheart and his, uh, his beautiful uh, friend, who is the uh, scientist's daughter, who's also a biologist in her own right, when they finally defeat the monsters, which have made the whole world and have come from some place where they're going to eat the Bronx and everything, he finally defeats them all, and there is a voice that comes out of the sky as you see this great ball of light go disappearing up towards the sun. And the voice says, Men must learn to live in peace together. We will return. And when we return... We will destroy civilization as it is known on earth unless man learns to live in peace and harmony. Bum, 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 bum. You've seen that scene. How many times have you seen it? And it disappears. And Steve Strongheart looks up at this big light that's disappearing, and he turns to, uh, to uh, Lesbia Latoul, this, the girl, this, the young scientist chick, see, he turns to her and says, before it is too late, man must learn to live together. Man must learn to live in truth and beauty. We have now received our warning. And let us now pray that mankind will take heed before it is too late. And then comes this thing, says the end, and you see the MGM thing, or you see the RKO pictures. You and then it says, we gratefully acknowledge the cooperation of the Yugoslavian Air Force, the uh, Japanese uh, space team, and uh, all the biologists of the Western world in producing this factual picture, which is based on the future. And then on comes the Preparation H commercial. Well, uh, <laughs> you've seen that movie a thousand times. Yeah, but it's a, a million times. What did they write monsters about before they had the A-bomb? Every monster movie has to do with the A-bomb. Now, now, this water thing, though, is very, very important. You notice monsters come out of the water. The Loch Ness Monster is in the water all the time. It is not forest. Right? Well, there's <laughs> no coincidence. No coincidence to that at all. Because everybody secretly believes there are fantastic evil monsters living down in the sea. They always did. In fact, Columbus, all those guys, they, they, they used to draw them on the maps. There's a big monster just south of Staten Island. Another big monster hanging around out there by Montauk. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, well, you know, it was very logical to believe this. And we all secretly believe it anyway. By the way, speaking of monsters, uh, I, I don't know what made me think of this, but... Uh, of course, we create our own monsters. And, uh, of course, we're living in the day of total jingoism and at the, the monster slogan, one thing or another. I heard the greatest 
piece of total claptrap that I've heard in a lot. That's a great phrase, by the way. Uh, sit back, you're, you're, you're in a sales meeting and that L.D. Bullard finishes. He wraps up the presentation and he says, uh, and I, I want to ask all you fellas now, I want you to be frank and honest. Uh, what do you think uh, of uh, our sales presentation? L.D. has worked on it for over seven months and the motivational research people have really done a great job. Now, what do you guys think about it? You just get up and say, claptrap. Try that out precise. That's a great phrase. That's a 19th century phrase. It's like galamafri and, and uh, phrases like that. They, they fit. The W.C. Fields phrase, which is a 19th century phrase. And he used to bark these things out. So, nevertheless, no, 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 I'm getting, I'm getting down to the monster problem here. It's just stick around there. It's, a, it's coming here. You know, the, the, the connection between darkness, the sea, monsters, voices that come out of the night, all these things are all deeply rooted down in the subterranean, subconscious netherworld where we all live, where all of us live, regardless of our age, sex, whatever it might be, generation, nothing. It's all down in there, this thing that's out there. And sometimes it takes uh, very odd forms, like the other day I have the radio on, see? I'm listening to this radio station out in, out in one of these dynamic stations up in Connecticut where they've got nothing but rock all day long and sound goes... And now stay tuned for the news in depth in brief. I said, what the hell is that? The news in depth in brief? Try that one on for size, friends. Seven seconds, seven seconds of news in depth and brief. George Orwell, we salute thee. George Orwell must have been a member of the NAB. <laughs> and, uh, I wonder about guys who can seriously read a thing like that and not realize that this is the kind of sound that a Japanese monster on a bad monster film would not even think of getting away with. That's another kind of monster. But the, the fear of monsters goes deep down inside of our gut, way down. And, of course, the belief that we're not a monster... I wonder how the frogs think of us. Are we a giant, avenging, totally, completely enigmatic monster, the frogs? Well, really, don't look at me with that dumb look. As a, but the frogs must have some comprehension of us. What does the us? This nut sitting up on his back, you know, wearing those funny little hats. You must think something. The monster concept is deep within all of us. And I, I remember when I had my real comeuppance. No, it is not necessary. Yes, I don't know whether fish are capable of liking or disliking things. I do know this about fish. They have an insatiable curiosity. Now, fish are very curious things. They have tremendous curiosity. If you've ever done any... Uh, Skin diving, you know that. I remember one time swimming along in maybe 40 feet of water in the Red Sea of all places, about, oh, maybe a half a mile from the Egyptian border near Eilat in Israel. 
and a barracuda. It's about five feet long. Well, this barracuda sits out there in this reef, and everybody knows him. And he waits for skin divers to come along. And he just drifts along and watches the skin divers. He's a skin diver fan. And so he is. And so you swim along, and he just swims along next to you. And he's got these tremendous eyes that look like big silver dollars. that they gleam in this clear water. Tremendous uh, reflection of these eyes. And, of course, they don't look the way they look when you pull them out of the water. They look very different when they're actually in the water. I'm talking about barracudas. In fact, that's true of all fish. And this barracuda is indescribably beautiful. He's uh, sort of made out of molten silver with little touches of blue, little flashes of red, but these great flat silver luminous eyes with the black dots in the middle. And he drifts along just like a ghost, just drifting. Then you, tr you, you make a left turn, so you figure, well, he must be just going our direction here. You make a left turn, and he drifts out on the turn. And he drifts back. And he follows you. And then he swims under you and drifts up on the other side, looks at you with his good eye, drifts around, and he's got these gigantic teeth, magnificent set of choppers. Wow. I mean, if he ever decided to taste you, you know, see what they, one of them skin divers tastes like, man, he'd gnaw you like you eat a piece of Jersey corn, you know, go right down that cob and just just past those great big eyes. Well, I had one time an experience that was involved with a monster. You want to hear about it? Well, it was a real monster. I mean, I, I know the kind of monster that many of you, most of you, have never seen. And I, I had never seen one in my life before this. And I'm, uh, I'm in this lake. I was about uh, 15. And uh, I was going through my total fishing cuckoo stage. And I had not totally gotten out of that either. So I really am not on fishing. And I used to make my own my own plugs. I would I would carve these plugs and I would buy treble hooks. I would take them out when we'd go to this lake up in Michigan. I'd cast. And, uh, I'd get a strike once every couple of months. But I never caught anything really. Once in a great while, I'd catch a little bass on one of my plugs. They were the worst plugs you ever saw. They'd hit the water like doorknobs. Like that. And I, I was very innocent and naive. I, I didn't know that, uh, you know, I just figured one day I'd catch a fish on my plug. And so I was building these plugs all the time. And the only time we ever really caught any fish, we'd go out with uh, worms and catch sunfish and bluegills. But I would read in, in magazines about fish. Guys would catch these big smallmouth, these largemouth bass. And so I kept making my plugs. And one night, I am drifting in the lily pads. Now, lakes are frightening. They're beautiful, but scary. You ever just looked down from the bow of a rowboat and looked into the green water, maybe 15, 20, 30 feet of water, and you saw all those long shafts of kind of silvery light that comes up from the bottom, like, like spread out fingers just reaching up, it's jade green. And you see thousands of little pieces, millions of tiny things drifting in and out of the water. It's like dust that you see floating in a sunbeam in a schoolroom. You see these things floating in there. And down on the bottom of that lake, 
It's scarier, really, in a way, than the ocean. Now, I don't know why this is so, but at the far end of the lake, this lake in Michigan where we were fishing all the time, they had a place that had been flooded, and there were all kinds of twisted tree stumps and white bleached uh, trunks of trees reaching out of the water. And this place was reputedly a fantastic place to catch bass. It was supposed to be shallow and had holes and weeds and stuff. And we didn't go down there too much because it was kind of dangerous. There were, there were snags and stuff down there, and especially at the time when bass were around. It was always scary down there around twilight. And so one night, I am fishing down there, just drifting, all by myself in this boat. Well, now, always inside of your gut, there's this little fear of the thing. That's why we make monster movies. The thing. Whatever it is. This thing in the depths. And I'm throwing out my doorknob-type plug that would hit the water with a splash. Boy, you could hear it for, you know, like 100 yards. Nothing. And I'm just casting this thing out. I must have cast it a hundred times. And I would drag it back over these strange-looking twisted white tree trunks that were standing up there on the end of this lake. And all around this side of the lake was nothing. There were no houses. There were just big overhanging trees and this vast marshy area with thousands and thousands of lily pads and these stretching reeds, these cattails that hung. And once in a while, a great blue loon. Have you ever seen a loon? You've never heard a loon? Well, a loon is one of the one of the one of the things that makes us believe in monsters. The reason I'm talking about this, here it is, it's fall time, friends. This is the time when people begin to they, they get that itch. Summer is a kind of benign time. You don't really think of things like it. It's Jones Beachville. It's groovy time. It's a diet yoo-hoo. It's a, it's a wink, you know, it's chicks in bikinis. But when the fall and the winter and the long, dark stretches of an ancient spring come slowly settling over the land, this is the time of the monsters, strange, lurking, subterranean things with goggly eyes. And I'm casting this plug out. Very innocent. I've been reading... Uh, field and stream ever since I was six. Anytime I could steal it down at George's newsstand, I read it. And, uh, so I know. There's smallmouth bass, there's bullheads, and there's crappies, and there's bluegills, and there's sunfish. I'm casting this plug, and it would go out. Well, any fisherman knows this strange feeling. As you get to twilight, you can't really see your plug. And it goes off into the sort of semi-darkness. You lose sight of it. It drifts off as you plug it. You, you cast out this hitting the water. It's sort of an orange, slanty, uh, brilliant orange. As it gets, by the way, in late fall in Michigan. And this was September in Michigan. And I'm casting this plug out. And it hits the water every time with a big splash. And there were two or three guys, oh, maybe uh, oh, possibly a half a mile away from me. One guy was in a green canoe. And another guy was drifting along the shore in some kind of kayak, and they were fly fishing or something. So they were way off. And I was down among these great white stretching trees. And that was when 
I discovered monsters. I laid that plug out. A long cast. And I was very good at casting. A long cast. I laid this baby out. A long shot. Way out. And I could see it arching up against the sky. And then it went down into the horizon and was gone. And then I heard it hit the water. And the see, I was casting by ear so that the instant that plug hits the water, you break it, you see, so you don't get a backlash. And so I've got my thumb riding loose on that spinning reel. And then I laid it out, and just at that minute, it hit the water and heard, then boom, wham. Something hit. The first time I have ever had a strike on my plug, reset it, all the way at the beginning. The first time I had a strike on this plug, and it really hit. Wham! Well, I set the hook, and it was unbelievable. This thing was fighting like no fish I had ever seen in my life. Tremendous battle. And I'm sitting there with my reel, which I bought for $1.98, case you're interested, from Montgomery Ward. It was called the Fishmaster Junior. I have my 298 steel rod, which I bought from Sears Roebuck. <laughs> and I've got my line, which was like clothesline, the worst line you could ever possibly get, and my homemade plug. And I have at the end of this line this fantastic fish, which I can't believe. It is fighting. Wow! Well, at first, I was all excited. You know, I got this great fish. My line is bent over double, and I'm leaning back into it, and it's it's not coming in. It's just going out further and further and further and further. I can see that line now cutting through the water and sending up a thin spray as it went out, made a big carving arc around the edge of the lily pads, and headed for the deep water. Ah! Ah! This fish, I'd say for probably 10 minutes. Now, for a freshwater fish, that is that is an unbelievable fight. Plus the fact that I had this cheap line, which I bought down at Kresge's. It was a 175-pound test line. It was about the thickness of the average clothesline. It was the only line that I could afford, big, thick, green line. And I'm leaning into this thing. And at first, I figure I've got the biggest bass in the lake. But he wasn't doing nothing like no bass. Every bass I ever saw or ever heard of would jump or he would die. This is just going out. He's just going out and inexorably going out. When I leaned back on this guy and I started to try to break this thing, he was out maybe 50, 75 yards. I slow him up. And then he starts coming towards the boat, hell-bent for election. He turns around. He's heading right for the boat. Ah, here he comes. And I can see this line coming at me. I'm reading him as fast as I could. And under the boat, he goes, whap. My line bends over. And now my pole is hanging down on the edge of the rowboat, bent almost double. And he's directly under the boat. I've got about six feet of line out. And he is laying right below the boat, whatever it is. And he is pulling straight down. He felt like an anchor. <laughs> now I'm getting scared. I'm really getting scared. This is no fish. 
and I could see one of the guys about a half a mile away in the green canoe. He is seeing this thing, and he's slowly beginning to paddle down. You know, fishermen always do this whenever they see somebody's got some action. He's paddling down, but then I see his eyeballs as big as ping-pong balls because he is seeing I'm just sitting there, and this thing isn't moving. Well, I give a couple of rocking tugs on it. See, I'm trying to get him off the bottom, whatever it is. And with that, I see, whoa! I see a flash in the water. Just, whoa! And down he goes again. And he starts to move out slow, working. He's just working out. I could feel that line thrumming, thrumming. So, <laughs> I'm scared. You know, you really, I've hit the jackpot. Now, most guys always dream of hitting the jackpot. But when you actually hit it, it scares the daylights out of you. I'll bet the Mets right now are scared out of their skull. Now they got to play the World Series and all that stuff. <laughs> Everybody's watching. I mean, it's like dreaming for years that, man, have you ever met Raquel Welch? And one night there's a knock on the door, and there's Raquel Welch. She's up in here and that you wanted to meet me. Would you like to talk? Let's go in your bedroom. <laughs> This fish, and he is the biggest thing. I'm telling you, my, my rod is bent over. And then he comes again in a big arc towards me. And I can see he's getting a little bit tired. And I'm pumping him in. And the guy in the green canoe is drifting towards me. And then, whoop, another flash. And it was a strange colored flash. It was kind of a silver, bronze, a dark greenish flash. Did not look like any fish I ever saw. It's getting dark now. It is almost completely dark. And then he is now next to the boat. I could see him moving in the darkness. I couldn't see him at all because he kept dragging under the boat. And the last instant, I finally get ready, and I, I heave him right up into the boat. And pow! He lands on the floor of the boat. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. His tail is slapping up against that wooden bottom. I couldn't believe it. I never saw a fish like this. He had these great big teeth. No scales at all. Smooth. Big, flat, wide tail. He weighed nine and a half pounds. He later weighed out at. And that's a big fish to pull out of a lake. But this was the worst evil-looking fish. He had a mouth roughly the size, I would say, the size of a saucer. And lined with teeth. And he kept moving on the on the floor of the boat, moving on the bottom towards me and around my feet, and I'm pulling up. <laughs> and he's got my plug sticking out of his trap, and he's he's angry, looking at me. And the guy in the canoe rode over and says, "What you got, buddy?" I said, "I don't know. I don't know." I had caught one of the rarest of the freshwater fishes. Have you ever heard of a golden dogfish? A rare fish that is as close to a freshwater shark as you can get. Ever since that time, friends, I know it is monsters. Monsters.